your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. So tell me, what is the connection between your cell phone and chili? We're talking about the country of chili, not the food that you eat. So the connection between your cell phone and the country of Chile. Second question, mercaptans. These are very foul-smelling compounds. For example, the odor of skunks. The question here, where does the name mercaptan come from? If you know the answer to either of those questions, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. You can text also your questions and queries and... Uh, answers to the, what I asked to 514-800. Very happy that you can join us on this uh, holiday weekend. Uh, I'm Joe Schwartz. Uh, I'm a professor of chemistry at McGill, and I also direct McGill's Office for Science and Society, where our mandate is to demystify science for you guys, separate fact from myth. And I actually just came across a, a very interesting term that I've not heard uh, before, truth decay, truth decay, which is what we are experiencing uh, these days with all of the nonsense that is being spread about COVID and, and vaccines and numerous other things. There is indeed a decay of truth. So I thought that, you know, that was a very interesting term to introduce. And uh, I think I probably will uh, use it again. You know that these days you can hardly wander down the food aisle in a bookstore where, you know, there are all kinds of books on nutrition, books on cooking, etc. But it is very hard to stroll down there without encountering superfoods. You'll see that on the title of books. You leave through a magazine, you'll find articles about uh, superfoods. Now, there's no legal definition here for superfood, but I think we all kind of appreciate uh, what we're talking about, what it means. It is uh, some food that imparts a health benefit other than just giving you the, the required calories and vitamins, minerals, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, so super means above. So it is delivering something above the normal. Mm. Uh, the idea of a superfood is not new, although of course the term is relatively recent. But uh, as early as 2000 BC, for example, garlic was used in China as an aid for digestion. And in Greece, it was deemed to energize soldiers in battle. And uh, the early Olympians were given garlic to enhance athletic performance. There's also a story about the Egyptian pharaohs giving garlic to the builders of the pyramids to uh, give them extra strength. I'm not sure whether that is true or not, or it's an apocryphal story, but we know that garlic was found in the tomb of King Tutankhamun, supposedly to somehow improve his life in the afterlife. <clears throat> and then there's the Ebrus Papyrus, this famous document that dates back to 1500 BC in Egypt. And in it, we find a recommendation for half an onion and the froth of beer as, quote, a delightful remedy against death. Well, I guess it didn't work very well because we don't see too many ancient Egyptians uh, walking in, on our streets today. 
then there was Hippocrates, the Greek physician who recommended lentils as a remedy for ulcers. And the Roman physician Galen, who wrote a treatise on the powers of food. That's what it was called. And he described how a balance in the body's four humors, that's yellow bile, black bile, blood, and phlegm, was the key to health. And uh, it could be either beneficially or adversely affected by diet. He also believed that a good physician must also be a good cook. Well, this theory of the four humors incredibly uh, persisted for close to 2,000 years until in the 18th century. Uh, some classic experiments in nutrition. We've talked, for example, about James Lind and how he found that uh, sailors aboard sailing vessels could be prevented from having scurvy by giving them citrus fruits. <clears throat> of course, he didn't really understand what was going on. Uh, he didn't know that it was the vitamin C there that prevented the scurvy. But he did actually carry out a, a nutritional study and showed that you know food was important in, in terms of health. And then in France, Antoine Lavoisier and his discovery of metabolism laid the foundations to nutritional science. Uh, and then along came Justus von Liebig in Germany, one of the, the top chemists, in fact, ever in history. And he analyzed food and found that it was a combination of fats and carbohydrates and protein. And that shifted focus from the four humors to the chemical composition of food as a determinant of health. The linking of physiology to food also saw the emergence of food gurus who began to promote specific foods for health. In America, Sylvester Graham advocated a diet of vegetables and coarse grains. And in 1837, even opened up a store called the Graham Provision Store. That was in Boston. And I think we would call that the country's first health food store. Uh, Graham, of course, uh, promoted whole grain flour, and the Graham cracker was named after him, although not by him. He didn't come up with that. <clears throat> but one of his disciples, James Caleb Jackson, introduced granula, spelled G-R-A-N-U-L-A, which was a bran-rich flour baked and broken into little nuggets, uh, and this was supposed to be healthy. But more than that, it was also supposed to deter people from self-pleasuring, which was claimed to be injurious to health. And then another Graham devotee, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, introduced yogurt as a health food. And then in the 1940s, J.I. Rodale ascribed wondrous properties to organic food and promoted an array of dietary supplements. So by the 20th century, the foundations of superfoods had been laid, but the first use of the exact term is uh, somewhat of a mystery. There is one claim that a poem published in a Jamaican newspaper during World War I used superfood in reference to wine. And apparently an article published in Lethbridge, Alberta, in the Lethbridge Herald in 1949, described a certain muffin as a superfood that contained all the known vitamins and some that had not been discovered. Well, that may be so, but, but I've tried to search Google and I can't find the original poem or that article from the Lethbridge uh, uh, Herald. Bananas took on the mantle of superfood without being so called. When an article by Dr. Sidney Haas appeared in 1924 
on treating celiac disease in children with a diet of bananas, milk, uh, some um, bone broth, gelatin, and a little meat. Bananas got the credit since at the time it was not known that the disease was an adverse reaction to gluten. The diet worked not because it included bananas, but because it excluded gluten. Now, when it comes to implanting the term in the public mind, that is of superfoods, I think the credit should go to an osteopath, a naturopath in Britain, Michael Van Stratton. He was a prolific writer of natural health books, and he hosted a show on radio called Body Talk, long running. And in 1990, he published a book that had the title Superfoods. And I think that was the first real mention of superfood in, in, in a broad way. And in it, he, dis, he ascribed therapeutic and disease preventive properties to a host of foods like apples, broccoli, onions, nuts, avocado. And he followed up with a number of other super books. There was super juice and super soups, super fast food, super boosters, super herbs. And for those who don't eat the superfoods, there was super detox. Van Stratten's ideas about superfoods uh, were germinated by a Swiss health tonic called Biostrath that he began to recommend to his patients in the 1960s. And because his patients were so happy with it, they said they felt energized and their health problems resolved, he started a company and he began to import this thing that had been developed by German chemist, Dr. Walter Strathmeyer. Biostrath is, a, is a, still around, is a blend of a variety of medicinal plants and brewer's yeast. It's very rich in B vitamins. And this is the thing that propelled Van Straten to fame and uh, basically propelled superfoods to fame. And that came about in a very, very interesting and a curious way that I will tell you. But first, we got to pause for a moment, check what traffic is like out there. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We are back with a correct answer that I had to my question about the link between your cell phone and the country of Chile. And uh, indeed, uh, it is all about lithium. Chile has the world's largest deposits of lithium. And lithium, of course, is used to make batteries. And uh, these days, we're using batteries in everything. And obviously, a lot of attention is being focused on the electric car, which uses batteries. And there's a lot of controversy about uh, the lithium that is needed for these batteries because of its extraction. And that extraction involves pumping brine, that is, uh, you know, salt water from under the desert to the surface and letting the water evaporate to leave a mixture of minerals from which lithium carbonate is separated and that that is processed into, into batteries. But when the brine is pumped up, fresh groundwater flows in to replace it. And that deprives neighboring areas of fresh groundwater. And there are a lot of people around the uh, lithium deposits in, in Chile who are very troubled by this because there are farms around there, there are animals, and their groundwater supply is, um, is in, uh, in danger. 
where to get enough lithium is uh, is a big question because we are certainly going to see an increased need for it. Um, there is um, a prospect uh, for having uh, more lithium in uh, Nevada. They are going to open up a large lithium mine there, again, not without controversy. And there are also large lithium deposits in Australia. But there, it's a different uh, method of, of uh, isolating it. You can actually mine the lithium uh, as a, its salt instead of having to pump it up with salt water from uh, deposits underneath the, uh, the desert. And, um, you know, I mean, while electric cars, of course, are uh, part of our future in terms of uh, renewable sources of energy, they're not the end all. <clears throat> Obviously, it depends on where you're sourcing electricity. So here in Quebec, uh, we're quite fortunate because we have a lot of hydropower which is obviously renewable. I mean, those rivers are going to keep flowing. Uh, but um, if you're living uh, in areas where there is no hydropower and there's no solar power and no wind power and you are using fossil fuels to generate electricity, and that makes for a different uh, story. So in the long run, what we have to focus on is electricity, but it has to be generated in a... Uh, renewable uh, fashion. So that uh, was the correct answer. So I'm still looking for an answer to my other question, which was about mercaptans, the foul-smelling compounds. Uh, you find them in uh, human flatus, you find them in, in uh, uh, skunks. And uh, my question was, it's an interesting name, mercaptan. Why is it called a mercaptan? What where does that originate uh, from? And now let me add the uh, next question. Why are radiologists concerned about a shortage in a supply of helium? 514-790-0800 or text to 514-800. Now I was going to tell you uh, a little bit more about superfoods. And as I said, it was uh, naturopath uh, Van Stratton in, in Britain who wrote the first major book that had superfood in the title, at least as far as I could find. And he followed this with a number of other super books. And uh, I told you that uh, there was a very interesting connection to how he achieved the degree of fame that he has achieved in Britain. That has to do with Barbara Cartland. Barbara Cartland uh, is uh, perhaps the best known British uh, uh, romance novelist. Uh, she is uh, well known for publishing 723 titles and having sold over a billion books. She died in the year 2000. Anyway, despite having no scientific education at all, she also ventured into the area of nutrition. And she described how she would take up to 100 supplements a day, pills, capsules of all kinds. And uh, this, this was really at the beginning of the, the quote, health food movement. And uh, she was one of the first ones to suggest that food processing removed some vitamins from food and that these needed to be uh, supplemented. When Margaret Thatcher was prime minister, she received a letter from Dame Cartland with an enclosure of pills that, quote, would take oxygen to every part of the body, including the brain. Don't know whether or not Margaret Thatcher took those. Uh, 
she was a very interesting person, Margaret Thatcher, of course, uh, the British prime minister, because uh, she was trained as a chemist. So she certainly had a scientific background, but uh, she was also known to have uh, ventured into alternative uh, treatments. So she may have taken these pills. <clears throat> anyway, back in 1964, Barbara Cartland wrote an article about being depressed due to the death of her husband. And that's when Van Straten sent her a couple of bottles of uh, Biostrath. And uh, this was a, a product that uh, he had uh, you know, become the distributor of. And that started a long friendship. And the duo of uh, Cartland and Van Straten even opened up an organic health food shop in London. And uh, when um, Cartland was asked to be a guest on a radio program about food, and this program would also have five professors who knew something about food on there, she only agreed to do this with the proviso that Von Stratton would come along. And I guess he must have performed well because he was soon offered a regular show of his own. And that was instrumental in launching his series of super prefixed books that spawned a deluge of similar publications of all types, singing the praises of goji berries, noni juice, chia seeds, kale, quinoa, kefir, spirulina, green tea, seaweed, and garlic as being instrumental in keeping the Grim Reaper away. However, let's get this straight. The fact remains that superfood is a marketing term, not a scientific one. It is possible to have a healthy diet without including any of the claimed superfoods and an unhealthy one despite guzzling chaga coffee, maki berries, or tiger nuts. And don't worry, no tigers have been emasculated uh, to get tiger nuts. Uh, these are um, tubers, very much like potato from, from, from a plant. And they have uh, an array of antioxidants. And, you know, antioxidants uh, are hyped as being extremely important in the so-called superfoods. <clears throat> there are good diets and there are poor diets. But uh, I think to label anything as a superfood is really a misnomer. The only food that can legitimately be called a superfood is whatever Superman eats. Yeah, then you can call it uh, a superfood. So there you have a bit of a background on uh, on uh, why uh, superfoods have become so popular, or at least the term, and the history of the term, which is you know just a, a bit obscure. But I think that the the first book that really popularized superfood was indeed this British book that I talked about, which was titled Superfoods by Michael Van Straten, who was uh, is a naturopath and uh, an acupuncturist and uh, osteopath. And uh, basically, I think his, his ideas on, on food are, are, are pretty good. Uh, I wouldn't at all put him into the quack category, uh, but uh, the idea that everything is based on super, you know, super herb, super food, super detox and all of that is uh, really a, a bit uh, over the top. <clears throat> All right. Uh, I did ask the other question about uh, why uh, there should be uh, a concern about the uh, low supply of helium that is now, now available by radiologists. And uh, yeah, a number of you ha have the right answer to, to that one. It is because uh, helium is used in uh, uh, MRI machines. Uh, 
and uh, you need uh, helium for superconduction. All right, uh, we do have to take another break. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes. Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. I had some uh, pretty good uh, spring corn uh, yesterday. It tastes as sweet, but it's not quite as sweet as when you pick the corn and immediately boil it and eat it. And the question is why? And some interesting chemistry here. The taste of freshly picked corn immediately dropped into boiling water. You just can't match that by cobs that have been sitting around. Here's why. Cells in corn manufacture glucose through photosynthesis. And then enzymatic reactions convert the glucose into starch, right? So corn is essentially starch. Now in living corn, there's a steady state of glucose because some is always being formed through photosynthesis and some is always being converted to starch. But once you pick the corn, within a few hours of it being picked, the chemical composition of the corn changes quite dramatically. Why? Because obviously glucose is no longer being produced. No more photosynthesis going on. But the enzymatic reactions that convert it to starch are still proceeding. So that makes the kernels more mealy, more starchy, and less sweet. So if you pick the fresh corn, you plunge it into boiling water quickly, that will inactivate the enzymes that convert the glucose into, into starch. So the glucose, which is what gives corn its sweetness, is preserved and uh, nothing tastes as good as that. So when you do get the chance to pick that fresh corn, plunge it into boiling water, count three minutes, that's all it takes from the point of boiling, three minutes, and you will get perfect sweet corn. <clears throat> all right, uh, another question for you. Why would you not use a carbon dioxide fire extinguisher on a magnesium fire? Why would you not use a carbon dioxide fire extinguisher on a magnesium fire? Now, I also have another question for those of you who are really scientifically minded. I know that we have a lot of both professional scientists and people who uh, like to tinker with science listening to this show. So here is a very interesting question for you. Why does natural gas, which is mostly methane, emit less carbon dioxide to produce the same amount of energy than coal or oil. So to get the same amount of energy out, natural gas will emit less CO2 than if you burn coal or oil. Why is that? If you know the answer, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. You can also text whatever question you may have or whatever comment you have to 514-800. YouTube is, is really quite amazing, isn't it? I mean, there's so many really interesting things uh, there. You can spend your whole life watching YouTube and never never get bored. There's a lot of, of garbage there too, of course, but there's a lot of really good stuff. 
And uh, I was uh, YouTubing the other day, and I came across <laughs> my old pal Deepak Chopra. I haven't talked about him for, for a while. Uh, Deepak is he's an enigma. He's a Western-trained physician, and at one time headed an endocrinology department in a hospital, but that was in a previous existence. Today, he's, well, I'm not sure exactly what he is. He's sort of a guru of spiritual healing. And I would be okay if he restricted himself to talking about relaxation therapies or the importance of having a positive attitude. But that isn't really what he does. He tries to bring science into play. I mean, some of his quotes, it, it's really hard to know what to make of them because it, to me, it just sounds like, like psychobabble or pseudoscientific babble. He says, we are thoughts that have learned how to create the physical machine, the body. Then he says, there's no physical world. It's all projection. The whole thing is a quantum soup. I don't know what that means, but I'm sure it irritates physicists who specialize in quantum uh, mechanics. Anyway, uh, I used to watch him when he, he was on with Oprah, which was, you know, quite often. And he spoke of the body making happy molecules in response to happy thoughts and ridding the body of impure negative thoughts and moods. I suppose he was trying to make some connection between the body and the mind, which is, is of course, reasonable. Nobody contests the fact that the mind can affect the body both negatively and positively. White coat hypertension is well-known phenomenon. Just the thought of having blood pressure measured can elevate it. Similarly, people who reduce their blood pressure and even body temperature through meditation. I mean, that's well-known. But when Chopra starts talking about eating specific foods to correct imbalances in the body's doshas, well, I get lost. These I gather according to ancient Indian Ayurvedic medicine or some sort of spiritual energy centers in the body. The problem though, is that they don't exist anatomically. You can't do an autopsy and find a dosha. So how can foods affect it? Chopra then went on to suggest that we should not drink cold water because the body wastes energy in warming it up. For optimal health, we should be drinking room temperature, even warm water. No thanks. This is nonsense. A simple calculation shows that to bring the temperature of a glass of water from zero degrees to body temperature takes an insignificant five calories. Well, then I heard Chopra follow that little gem of advice with a demonstration, which is actually a parlor trick. He gave Oprah a string with a weight attached and asked her to hold the string with her fingers and let the weight dangle, trying to keep it motionless. Chopra then mumbled something about the spirit demonstrating its existence through the dangling string. Sure enough, the weight hanging from Oprah's fingers started to trace out circles. There's absolutely nothing spiritual about this. It is purely an example of the power of suggestion. It is known as the idiomotor response. The weight is moved subconsciously by muscular action. This in no way demonstrates the mind's ability to overcome disease. And uh, that was Chopra's basic message, that the body can heal itself, that our molecules are constantly regenerating themselves, and that the mind can control this regeneration. It is a comforting thought that disease can be cured by the power of the mind. But unfortunately, science does not provide evidence for this. 
Of course, that's not to say that there isn't a connection between the body and the mind, as I already suggested. But it doesn't cure anything. It just changes your perception of the disease. So is there any harm in believing in this simplistic philosophy? Maybe there is. There's at least one recorded case of a patient giving up chemotherapy after hearing Chopra on a PBS program. Uh, some people call him the Lord of Immortality. He says he will live to well uh, beyond 100 years old because I guess his mind is somehow contributing to that. What we know is that with all of this mumbo-jumbo, he makes a lot of money. And... Uh, this kind of stuff sells, it sells. So as I said, uh, Chopra is kind of uh, an, you know, an enigma. And uh, I mean, that, that really is, is obvious when you just look at some of his, uh, his quotes, you know. There are no extra pieces in the universe. Everyone is here because he or she has a place to fill and every piece must fit itself into the big jigsaw puzzle. What does that mean? I have absolutely no idea. Wealth is the progressive realization of worthy goals, the ability to love and have compassion, meaningful and caring relationships. I mean, this is just a word salad that, that uh, doesn't mean anything. We are not victims of aging, sickness, and death, he says. These are part of the scenery, not the seer who is immune to any form of change. This seer is the spirit, the expression of eternal being. Uh, I, again, have no idea what that means. But I do know that we do have to take a break and check traffic. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We are born to do science. A baby can do it and so can you. We are born to do science. Just figuring out what's true. I think we have uh, Maya on the line. Maya. We'll go to Maya. Maybe we are lost, Maya. Anyway, have you ever wondered why earwigs are called earwigs? Well, there's an interesting story there. The name comes from a European superstition that the insect would enter the ear of a sleeping person and bore into the brain. You probably heard these uh, stories. An earwig crawls into a lady's ear while she's asleep on a beach. She doesn't realize anything is wrong until she starts to have terrible pains. An x-ray analysis reveals the bug is burrowing through her brain and the poor victim is told the earwig will eventually emerge from the other ear. And that is just what happens. The bug comes out and the pain disappears. Life goes back to normal until the pain returns. Another x-ray is taken. Patient is given the devastating news. The earwig was a female, apparently pregnant because she laid eggs and all the freshly hatched little earwigs are now devouring her brain. Of course, it's an urban legend. There were TV shows based on that urban legend. And anyway, earwigs may occasionally crawl into ears, but they most assuredly do not bore into the brain. But you know what? Sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. Earwigs may not crawl into ears, but spiders do. A Greek physician had a visit from a patient who developed a strange feeling in her ear while out on a motorcycle ride. Upon looking into her ear, the physician was shocked to see first a spider web 
and then its inhabitant apparently happily curled up in the warm surroundings. Recognizing that this was an epic moment, he ran for his video camera and recorded the arachnid's hasty emergence from its new home. I don't think this happens only in Greece. A similar event was recorded in Canada, in Nova Scotia. A lady complained of a buzzing in the ear and feared that a fly had somehow flown in. Once again, a stunt physician came face to face with, with a spider. He initiated the usual treatment for bugs in the ear, namely squirting in water. It seems the spider didn't take kindly to this at all. It jumped out of the ear and ran down the patient's face. And the episode culminated with the patient hyperventilating and running around the examining room, yelling, oh my God, oh my God. This, is re this was recorded in a scientific uh, uh, journal. Well, I suppose it could have been worse, right? It, it could have been a pregnant earwig. Okay, I asked a question about uh, how come that uh, burning methane is environmentally more friendly than, than burning coal or, or oil because uh, uh, it produces less carbon dioxide for the same amount of energy uh, yielded. And uh, I did get an answer from uh, uh, James. I mean, James Bond uh, usually has the correct answer to my questions. So I like to give a chance to others to answer as well. But this time, James is, is kind of skirting the truth. Uh, he said, uh, methane contains hydrogen, so the burning oxidation reaction of this part of the methane produces water rather than carbon dioxide. That, of course, is true. That, of course, is true. But, but uh, coal and oil also contain hydrogen, and they also contain carbon. So what's the difference? How come you get more energy out of burning the methane than out of burning coal or, um, or oil? Um, someone else says you have to watch Star Trek Wrath of Khan movie with similar idea used to torture its victims. I'm not sure what is being referred to, whether it's the something in the ear or whatever. Not sure. Uh, I've not I've not seen the Wrath of Khan. I've, I've seen many of the Star Trek movies, but I don't think I've uh, I've seen that one. Okay, let me uh, uh, tell you uh, a little bit about uh, cloves. It's a spice. You're familiar with that. Uh, it's you know, quite a commonly used spice, but something that, that uh, you might not know, that back in the 3rd century BC, officers of the court in China were required to carry cloves in their mouth when addressing the emperor. And this was to prevent him from being exposed to bad breath. It was uh, probably in this fashion that people discovered that cloves have local anesthetic properties. Now, there's a compound that's found in cloves. It's called eugenol. And it's still used by dentists to anesthetize the gum before giving a needle. So if you remember when you get a needle at the dentist, I, I don't mean to conjure up bad memories. Most people are not too happy to be needled. But uh, you know the dentist will um, often take a little piece of cotton and swab the area where it's to be injected to just numb it temporarily. Well, what they are using there is oil of cloves and taking advantage of the eugenol's uh, anesthetic properties. Anyway, in, in an emergency, oil of cloves can be rubbed around an aching tooth for relief. You know, if something happens and you can't get to, to the dentist, some interesting mythology surrounds cloves as well. 
folklore suggests they have aphrodisiac properties because they resemble a certain part of the male anatomy. But of course, this is, is nonsense. Cloves may improve your breath, but they do not make you breathless in, in any kind of a of way. Um, okay, I'm still waiting for the, the answer to the question about uh, uh, methane. Uh, methane is, is natural gas. Uh, CH4 is, is the formula. <clears throat> Although it, it's not only natural, it's not only methane. There's some ethane and some propane in natural gas uh, as well. And uh, it burns very clean. And my question was, how come that for the same amount of energy produced, uh, you don't produce as much carbon dioxide with uh, uh, burning uh, uh, methane, burning natural gases, than you would uh, burn uh, oil or, uh, or or coal. And today, of course, we're hoping to burn less and less coal because uh, that is, is highly polluting, uh, not only because of the carbon dioxide that is produced, but also the soot. There, whenever you burn coal, uh, you put a lot of soot into the air, and there's no question that there are a lot of respiratory problems uh, in coal miners. <clears throat> coal miners' lung is, of course, a well-known disease, and, and uh, if you ever see an X-ray of the lungs of a, of a coal miner, uh, it can look even worse than uh, an X-ray of someone who's been a habitual uh, smoker. The... Uh, the only problem is that coal is indeed a good source of, uh, of energy. And um, the other hand, we are eventually going to run, run out of it. So we're constantly looking for you know, the renewable sources of energy. And this is uh, obviously coming to uh, fore now in Europe with uh, Russian oil being cut off. Germany is in a bind. Uh, they have shut down their nuclear reactors uh, and uh, now, no, with no oil coming in, uh, they have to resort to, to other sources. And maybe they'll have to once again use coal. I think it would be much better to go back to using nuclear energy. <laughs> that is it. We have uh, run out of time once more. But fret not. We'll be back with you same time, same station next week with a really interesting guest. Uh, I will have uh, Professor Miriam Diamond from the University of Toronto, who's an environmental chemist, and we're going to talk about chemical pollution, uh, not only when it comes to things like coal, but even in uh, laundry, the clothes that you wear and the jewelry that you may purchase. That is it. We'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. With air to